This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 164. Hey there, folks. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, fresh off the writing desk. I'll also let you know what I'm up to in my current writing endeavors. But first, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 22 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. Once again, I'm short on time to finish this script, so I'm going to skip the recap this week. Here is Chapter 22. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written in Red by Chris Lester Chapter 22 Dr. Jared Tamlin arrived at work on Monday morning and prepared to do battle with his most recalcitrant patient. He'd had stubborn cops in his office before, men and women who didn't want to open up, didn't want to express their feelings, didn't trust Jared or the system he was part of. All of that was to be expected. Police work attracted people who were capable, self-assured, and aggressive, people who believed in their own skills as problem-solvers. They were the people who helped, not the people who needed helping. So when they had personal problems that affected their fitness for duty, their first instinct was always to handle it themselves. Jared's job was to help them realize when they couldn't. It was often a thankless task, but he got through to them all sooner or later but not Kitane. Jared had been seeing her in their weekly sessions for more than a month now, and she was only growing more closed off and hostile with every meeting. Jared knew other psychologists in MCPD who'd had patients like her, but he had always assumed that was because they lacked Jared's gifts for empathy and insight. No one on the force was aware of it, but Jared was a telepath. A very weak telepath, admittedly, but he could still get a sense of people's emotions, or when they were lying to him. He liked to think of it as his secret advantage, the special talent that combined with his training to make him such an effective psychologist. Until Katane, it had always been enough. He didn't know what made her so difficult. She had killed someone in the line of duty, and that required a different therapy approach from other kinds of trauma, but it was nothing he hadn't done before. Jared's job in such cases was to help the patient process the inevitable feelings of guilt, and to help the officer distinguish between a good shoot, which was justified and appropriate, and a bad shoot, which was not. If the shoot was a bad one, say, for example, that an anxious cop had shot an unarmed civilian that he mistook for a criminal, then there were clear steps that could be taken. The officer could receive additional training in using his or her weapon, in situational awareness, in target discrimination, 
Mistakes were tragic, but a mistake could be learned from, and then prevented in the future. The justified cases, though, the good shoots, those were more difficult, because they weren't mistakes. The police officer made a tactical decision to end a person's life, either to protect herself or to protect someone else. The power to make that choice had been bestowed on her with society's blessing, and she had used it appropriately. In some ways, it was similar to the power given to soldiers, but a soldier's weapon was always and only pointed at the enemy, while a cop's weapon could be used against imperial citizens. The burden of that responsibility set police apart from those they protected, even more apart than soldiers were. But often it was not until they had been forced to maim or kill in the line of duty that the officers truly felt that isolation in its fullness. Jared wanted to talk to Katane about the experience of shooting the thrall. From everything he had read in her file, it was a clear-cut case of a good shoot. He wanted Katane to open up about her feelings about the experience, the isolation she now found herself in. Granted, she had experienced traumatic stress as well. The battles she had experienced last month were apparently up close and terrifying. But that was a secondary issue. PTSD did not afflict everyone equally, not even survivors of the same traumatic events, and many cops had the sort of personality that could recover from such experiences with time. For Katane, the problem of guilt around a good shoot was the more pressing concern. That was the problem that would cause her to shrink back in the next firefight, to hesitate, to doubt herself in the key moment of decision. It was the problem that could leave her or her partner dead. Jared's mind swirled through all these thoughts as he poured his morning coffee, processed through his inbox, and waited for Katane's appointment. He reviewed his past notes on her case, trying to think of a new approach that might help him get through to her. After a while, he looked at the clock. 10.10 a.m. Katane should have been here by now. He went out to the entrance of the precinct house, where Marcy sat at the front desk. The little woman smiled up at him from behind her cat-eye glasses. "'Morning, Dr. Tamlin,' she said, in her thick, nasal, south-side accent. "'What can I do for you?' "'Good morning,' Jared said. "'Marcy, have you seen Lieutenant Katane this morning? She was my ten o'clock.' Marcy clucked her tongue. "'Oh, dear, they didn't tell you?' Jared frowned. "'Tell me what?' Marcy leaned in toward her computer screen, typing and clicking for several seconds. Eh, typical. She shook her head. Just a sec, hon. She rose from her chair, went to a large box full of inter-office mail envelopes in the corner of the room, and started digging through it. I swear, I don't know why we bother with computers if they ain't gonna use them. Jared came up to lean over her shoulder, curiously. Marcy made a triumphant sound and pulled out one of the envelopes, passing it to Jared. Here you go, hon. Sorry I didn't get it to you sooner. Jared looked down, saw his own name written on the to line. The from line was from Special Investigations Division. Frowning, Jared opened the envelope and pulled out a few sheets of paper. On top was a copy of a transfer order, stating that Lieutenant Catherine Katane was being reassigned to Special Investigations Division, effective immediately. Below that was a records request, asking that all of Jared's records on Katane be turned over to the SID staff psychologist, Dr. Bronson. 
The papers had been sent out on Friday afternoon, with a due date of today. Someone's in an awful hurry, he thought. Thanks, Marcy, Jared said. It came out as almost a growl. Dark thoughts were circling in his mind. He stalked back to his office and shut the door, probably harder than he had to. He called Dr. Bronson. No answer. He called Captain Shaw, the head of SID. The call went to voicemail. Fine. We'll do this the hard way. Jared gathered up his records on Katane, typed up a quick letter to accompany it, then printed off two copies and signed them. He dropped one in the inter-office mail to his supervisor, the MCPD Director of Psychological Services. The other he carried with him down to the garage. He got in his skimmer and drove to Justice Tower. The receptionist at SID was polite and helpful, but he was still left waiting for nearly half an hour before they ushered him back to Shaw's office. The androgyne rose and smiled broadly as he entered. Dr. Tamlin, welcome to SID, they said. Rather than the customary bow of greeting, Shaw came up to Jared and took his hand in both of theirs, gripping it warmly. Strictly speaking, it wasn't necessary for you to come down here yourself to deliver the records, but I appreciate the personal touch. Of course, Jared said. He kept his voice calm and level, hiding his anger below the surface. I need to have a word with you about Lieutenant Katane. Shaw spread their hands and gestured to the chair in front of their desk. Please. Jared sat. The androgyne perched on the edge of their own chair, leaning forward over the desk, their hazel eyes locked intently on Jared's, with a focus he found unnerving. He cleared his throat and looked down at the stack of paper in his hands. I don't know what you've heard about Katane, Jared said. I realize that information doesn't always flow through this department as quickly as we would like. Things get lost, overlooked. Sean nodded once, sharply, their eyes still fixed on his face. The lieutenant has been through an extremely difficult series of events, Jared went on. In the space of 48 hours, she and her partner were kidnapped, left for dead, fought their way out of Hunter's Hollow, and then participated in a series of life-and-death engagements with syndicate agents inside the Citadel, the details of which are highly classified. Shaw nodded again. I know. She performed extraordinarily well under immense pressure. It's the reason I wanted her for SID. And I can appreciate that, Jared allowed. But, Captain, you have to understand that Katane has not processed those experiences in a healthy manner. She has shown no progress in her therapy. She is not fit for duty, and based on what I've seen, I can't say when or if she ever will be. He handed the papers over to Shaw. I've outlined my concerns in this letter, here. Shaw glanced down at the papers, nodding thoughtfully. Thank you, Dr. Tamlin. I'll make sure Dr. Bronson gets this immediately. Thank you. Jared hesitated. I want to formally go on record stating that I disagree with this decision to transfer Katane to a different division in the middle of her treatment. I think it's reckless. It reinforces Katane's behavior of finding shortcuts around her problems instead of doing the difficult work of solving them. It risks delaying her genuine recovery and putting her back in harm's way before she is equipped to handle it. Shaw leaned back in their chair and steepled their fingers, frowning. 
Doctor, how long was Katane your patient? More than a month now. And in that time, you've seen no progress? None, Jared agreed. Shaw pursed their lips. Did you ever wonder if maybe your approach was the problem? Jared bristled. I think my track record speaks for itself. No, no, of course, Shaw said, raising a hand. I'm not saying you aren't an excellent psychologist. You've been able to help a great many people. But your system, your approach, it was built for police officers. Jared frowned. Katane is a police officer. Katane wears a police badge, Shaw said. What she is, is a warrior. She may not realize it herself yet, but she is. That's why she belongs in SID. Shaw leaned forward again, placed their hand palm down on the desk in front of Jared. Warriors process conflict differently from other people. SID has our own systems in place, to deal with the fear, the danger, the responsibility of what we do. They're good systems, Doctor. They work well, and they're efficient. And efficiency is what we need right now, because whether anyone else out there realizes it, we are in a war, and I need every able-bodied warrior I can get to fight it. Jared heard the ring of conviction in Shaw's words. Right or wrong, there would be no convincing them otherwise. Jared pushed back his chair and rose to his feet. You're not doing her any favors, Captain. She's going to get herself killed. Shaw rose as well and walked him to the door. I appreciate your concern, Doctor. It speaks well of you. But if your warriors stay off the battlefield because they might be killed, you lose the war. The Androgyne put their hand on Jared's shoulder and squeezed it firmly. We'll take good care of her, Doctor. We know what we're doing. Jared smiled sadly at those proud, confident eyes. I really hope you're right, Captain. Good day. Kate awoke to a headache late Monday morning after a night of vague and formless dreams. The voice in the prison did not make an appearance, nor did the skunk man she had encountered the previous day. On her bedside table there was an open bottle of whiskey, thankfully not empty, and the prescription bottle of sleep aids that Dr. Tamlin had prescribed. Kate did not remember using either one of them. Another hole. Was this what she had resorted to in John's absence? What are you doing, Kate? This isn't you. She didn't have a good answer for herself. She had already missed her appointment with Dr. Tamlin, but with her transfer in process, she hoped that wouldn't be an issue. She got up, stretched, did half an hour of weights and strength exercises, then showered and got ready for work. She didn't know if Shaw would be ready for her to start yet or not, but since she had to go over to SID anyway to deliver the files, she figured it couldn't hurt to be prepared. She slipped the files into a backpack, filled up a water bottle as a defense against the scorching heat, and headed out. Kate walked a block and a half to the nearest subway station, where she caught the express line north to the downtown district. From there, it was only a five-minute walk to Justice Tower. She arrived a little before eleven o'clock. The receptionist at SID that morning was the same one who had been on duty when Kate first came to visit Captain Shaw. Lieutenant, welcome back, the woman said, smiling warmly at Kate. Her eyes drifted briefly over Kate's shoulder to the lift behind her. 
Is your, uh, friend going to be joining you today? She licked her lips once, a reflexive gesture, and one she probably didn't even notice she was doing. Kate resisted the urge to roll her eyes. Not today, sorry. I've got some paperwork for the captain. She raised the stack of files in one hand. A friend of mine in Precinct 9 was working overtime this weekend, so I offered to run him over. Nice, the receptionist said, with apparent sincerity. I'll let Shaw know you're here. Help yourself to some coffee if you like. I do like, thanks. The coffee turned out to be particularly good. Not as strong or as dark as she liked it at home, but smooth and drinkable just the same. Given their budget for everything else, Kate wasn't surprised. Shaw called her back less than ten minutes later. The androgyne was grinning when Kate walked through the door. Couldn't wait to get started, could you? she asked. And Kate noticed that she was again thinking of Captain Shaw as she, though there was nothing overtly feminine about the androgyne's dress or appearance. Stop obsessing over it, she told herself. Shaw is Shaw. Stop trying to put her in a box. It doesn't matter anyway. I've been waiting too long already, ma'am, Kate said. I found an errand, at least. These files are for you. Shaw's eyebrows went up, her eyes bright with interest. She took the stack from Kate and flipped open the first file. More of Malcolm's cronies terrorizing the street rats? Actually, ma'am, it's almost the opposite. Kate explained what she and her friends had uncovered. The faked vampire kills, the evidence of black magic at work, the odd set of genetic links between the torture victims, and the complex web of communications and money movements uncovered by Silas Kenning. It took quite some time to lay everything out, but Shaw listened to it all with the focused intensity of a bird of prey. This is excellent police work, Shaw said at last, looking straight into Kate's eyes. I knew I was right about you, but I never guessed I was this right. Kate blushed a little at the praise, surprising herself. Thank you, ma'am. Shaw nodded decisively, set the files on her desk, and sprang to her feet. All right, then. Dr. Bronson can't clear you for duty until he reviews your file from Dr. Tamlin, but there's no reason we can't get you started on training and orientation. Walk with me. She strode for the door, and Kate hurried to follow. Shaw moved with the vitality of someone half her age, not hurried, but energized. Kate felt her own energy level rising just by proximity to the captain, her earlier self-doubts and discouragement dropping away like last year's oak leaves in the spring. Shaw led her on a whirlwind tour through the SID headquarters. There were sections for each of the major classes of crime that SID dealt with. Major theft, kidnapping, arson, terrorism, worldnet crime, and others, as well as a lavish fitness center research labs for both mundane science and monology, and several break rooms, including a barracks for officers who were working long cases and needed to sleep on site. Kate met so many people that she stopped trying to keep track of their names and positions. She could always call them up in her eidetic memory at a later date. They ended their tour near a cluster of four cubicles near the center of the complex, around the corner from Shaw's office. Three of the desks were currently unoccupied. At the fourth sat a petite theriomorph, a woman with the form of a snow leopard. She wore a royal blue silk blouse, tan slacks, and brown leather boots, 
all of which fit her slender body like they had been tailor-made for her, and she had a line of four silver earrings on the lower half of her fuzzy right ear. Kate recognized her from her first visit. She was the officer who had taken Kate back to meet Captain Shaw. Kate, this is Corporal Elizabeth Moore, Shaw said. Lizzie, Lieutenant Catherine Catane. Kate bowed her head to the woman in greeting. Hey, how's it going? Lizzie rose from her chair and bowed from the waist, all in one smooth, elegant motion. Her large, pale blue eyes sparkled, the pupils' tiny round dots under the fluorescent lights. Her demure smile conveyed both a friendly openness and a sense of hidden depths. Hello, Lieutenant, Lizzie said, and though her voice was much higher than Morgan's, Kate could hear the same cultured tones within it. It's a pleasure to finally meet you. Kate's eyebrows went up. She glanced at Shaw and wondered if she would hear Kate's unspoken question. What's a Skywalker doing in a job like this? Lizzie came to us from the Fugitive Enforcement Division about a year ago, Shaw said. She was a natural fit for missing persons. I'm making her your partner for the time being, until Detective Silverleaf gets back to Metamore. Lizzie will help you get settled in. But not too settled, Lizzie said, flashing a wry and sharp-toothed grin. S.I.D. isn't a place to rest on your laurels. I've been resting long enough, Kate said. Shaw put a hand on her shoulder. I need to go back to my office and take care of a few things, so I'll leave you with Lizzie for now. We have an all-squad meeting at 1300, so don't miss it. Yes, ma'am, Kate said, nodding sharply. Shaw left, and Lizzie leaned back against her chair, smiling enigmatically. Her long, tufted tail flicked back and forth behind her, like a lazy pendulum. What? Kate asked. Lizzie's smile broadened. Ma'am, she said. Kate felt a flush in her cheeks. Look, I'm sorry, she feels like a man to me. Most androgynes don't make it that hard to tell. Lizzie laughed. It was a deep and wicked sound, completely different from what Kate would have expected given her voice. Yeah, the captain's not really interested in gender conformity. It's never been part of their identity, I guess. Kate winced. I don't want to offend her. Them? Damn it. I've never seen them get upset at anyone over it, Lizzie assured her. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Kate straddled one of the empty chairs and leaned forward on the seat back. What do you guys call Shaw, then? Not sir or ma'am? Usually Captain. Lizzie glanced up at the clock. I'm guessing you already had the tour. Shaw loves showing off the headquarters to newbies. Kate nodded. What would you say to some lunch? On cue, Kate's stomach rumbled. Sounds like a great idea. Lead the way, partner. And that's the end of chapter 22. Come back next time when Kate and Lizzie get to know each other and Shaw briefs their team on their new mission. Lawrence Block said, One thing that helps is to give myself permission to write badly. I tell myself that I'm going to do my five or ten pages no matter what and that I can always tear them up the following morning if I want. I'll have lost nothing. 
Writing and tearing up five pages would leave me no further behind than if I took the day off. So let's check in on my progress for the week. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 2,906 words this week, over the course of six hours, for an average writing speed of 484 words per hour. I wrote on six out of seven days this week. This week I really made a dedicated push to carve out time for writing, and it paid off. I set aside time on my lunch break every day to work on my new story, Homecoming. And even if I only got half an hour and a few hundred words, that was a few hundred words more than I would have had otherwise. This is how I'm going to get back into the habit of writing, making a little time every day and just doing what I can. And now, the feedback. April Cheney posted this on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. I have a question. You have such a huge world, with so many recurring characters throughout your books. How do you remember all the little details about your characters? Like how someone likes her coffee, or someone's favorite color? After April posed her question, several other fans jumped into the thread and pointed out the existence of my writer's wiki. And that is indeed where I keep track of a lot of important details. But some things about the characters I just know by heart. And one of the best examples of that is how the characters like their coffee. I use characters' coffee habits to signal things about their personalities and their upbringing. Take Kate, for instance. She's an adrenaline junkie who likes to go fast, get things done, and keep moving. So she takes her coffee straight and black, and she drinks a lot of it. John, by contrast, is a lot more laid back about coffee and everything else. If he's going to drink it at all, it's for the pleasure of it, so he adds cream and sugar to make it taste better. Callie Linder is someone who grew up without being able to afford luxuries like fancy coffee. If she could get coffee at all, it was probably the cheap stuff. She learned to use cinnamon and brown sugar to doctor the taste, because they're both flavorful and relatively inexpensive, stuff she could get at the local bodega. This reinforces the idea that Callie is creative, adaptable, and figures out ways to fit herself into a world that has no place for her. To take the opposite case, Morgan Drowling was born to privilege and high status. She's always had access to fancy coffee, so she has very particular preferences about roasting style, country of origin, etc. And she drinks her coffee black so that those distinctive flavor profiles really come out. This fits with not only her highborn upbringing, but also the fact that she pays careful attention to small details, which is important in her line of work. These aren't things that I thought out explicitly before I wrote them out. They were instinctive choices, things I just knew as I got to know the characters. And once they were established, they were so tightly connected to my sense of who the characters were that I never really forgot them. There are a few other details like that, too like the fact that Kate dresses in earth tones, Evan and Ava wear light gray suits, and Morgan tends toward black, white, and red. But for most other things, the wiki helps me keep everything straight. I have to say, though, that Logan Waterman had the most interesting theory about how I keep track of my story details. He wrote, Chris is actually a next-generation AI quantum computer. 
He creates novels based on observed theoretical phenomena. It's just his hobby during down cycles, running the Illuminati weather control and secret moon base. From there, the conversation got even stranger, but very amusing. You can check out the rest of it at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. Thanks for the question, April. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.